Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest on the podcast today is Bob Kopp. This is a good one. Really wonky on multiple dimensions, but deeply satisfying. So I do this podcast for you, the audience, but I also do it for me because it's therapeutic and it's a creative outlet. And also I do it to learn. And Bob was one of these guests where a lot of the reason I wanted to talk to him was just to have an excuse to have a long conversation because I wanted to pick his brain about all the stuff he knows about. And that is a lot. Bob's an earth scientist. His original training is in paleoclimate, paleobiology, and ecology. And that's deep time stuff far from present day concerns. But from early on, Bob had an orientation towards policy and public service that he got from his parents. And once he got his PhD, he went in that direction and he hasn't gone back. Bob's a professor in the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Rutgers in New Jersey, where he's also co-director of the University Office of Climate Action, and he directs the Megalopolitan Coastal Transformation Hub, which, quoting from its webpage, is a National Science Foundation-funded consortium that advances coastal climate adaptation and the scientific understanding of natural and human coastal climate dynamics. So that's a lot already. But in addition to that, Bob is one of the directors and founders of the Climate Impacts Lab, a consortium of a couple groups in academia and the private sector that has developed a new integrated assessment model that, as of the end of last year, is being used by the EPA to guide their new estimates of the social cost of carbon, and that's the essential number used to estimate the climate impacts of federal policies. So this is the culmination of something like a decade of work by Bob and his colleagues, and it includes a tremendous amount of new science on how climate affects social welfare across a broad range of sectors. So we talked a lot about that, but also how Bob got to that point, including an interdisciplinary postdoc and then a stint working at the Department of Energy as a young scientist, experiences from which he managed to learn a lot about economics and policy to complement all the science he already knew. And we talk about the limitations of integrated assessment models and economic analyses of climate change more broadly and how this relates to the history of climate policy in the United States, including the failure of the Waxman-Markey Act and more recently, the breakthrough success of the Inflation Reduction Act. Along the way, we talked about the challenges of doing use-inspired research in academia, something Bob is successful at to a really remarkable and unusual degree. And at the end, we get into Bob's work on sea level projections, although we didn't really do justice to that because there was just too much to talk about. Altogether, Bob is an exceptional example of an academic scientist who manages to make major contributions on a wide range of subjects, but also to do high-impact, policy-relevant, use-inspired, interdisciplinary work, work that matters in the world. And he does this while being humble and matter-of-fact. I learned so much from this conversation with Bob Kopp, so I'll be quiet now. Here it is. Thanks a lot for doing this, Bob. My pleasure. Great. So... Usually, we like to start with people's biography. So, where were you born? So, I was born, uh, I guess, strictly speaking, in Washington, D.C. I grew up in Bethesda, Maryland. Right. And tell me about early life. What did your folks do? Yeah. So, my dad, until about 10 years ago, worked at the Department of Justice. Um, oh, wow. For that whole, that, that whole time, basically starting when I was born until he retired, he was director of the appellate staff of the Civil Division at DOJ. Uh, my mother uh, is a Maryland state politician. She 
served in the state legislature from 1974 to 2002 when she became state treasurer, um, which she retired from in December. Wow. So I did not know this about you. So quite a family yeah. legacy of public service. Yeah. So so uh, I grew up steeped in a tradition of public service. So my dad was a civil servant. My mother was a state political leader. Um, actually, beyond that, um, my dad's stepfather was a tax court judge. Um, my mom's father was a judge at the Atomic Energy Commission after a, a career as a, a working nuclear engineer. Wow. So did you feel any uh, compulsion to do something along these lines? Well, I mean, I've always always uh, sort of had interests in policy um, in politics. Um, you know, so, so that actually sort of partly helped get me to where I am now. I did, you know, probably least politically and policy engaged while I was in college. I did my undergraduate work at Chicago, working on Martian meteorites. I went on to do a PhD at Caltech, working on sort of deep time paleoclimates, noble earth, um, fossil magnetotactic bacteria. But while I was at Caltech, I also I also got involved somewhat in, in sort of local politics in, in Pasadena, young Democrats, and then also sort of had this desire to take what I was, I was learning about sort of the history of the Earth system and how to think about the Earth system as a whole and, and apply it to modern societal challenges. So that sort of led me to take this turn as a postdoc away from deep time. Um, so I did a, a postdoc at Princeton uh, in geosciences and, and public affairs, uh, where I worked on a number of things, including past sea level changes and what we can learn about them that's relevant to future sea level changes. Also, um, sort of trying my hand a little bit at things like integrated assessment modeling. I wrote a paper with Denise Maserat while I was there on black carbon and, and their various metrics of impact. But most of my work there was with Michael Oppenheimer and Adam Malouf uh, on sort of the sea level related work and, and some work with Adam on other paleo stuff, but still wanting to get more experience than I did go and actually do two years uh, as of civil service um, as a AAAS science and technology policy fellow. So for the first two years of the Obama administration, I worked in the office of policy on both sort of how you incorporate climate change impacts into regulatory analysis and design and on international clean energy diplomacy. And then after that, I, I decided that was great. I enjoyed doing that, but it was not a long-term career trajectory for me and returned to academia. So I've been at Rutgers uh, ever since. Uh, I continue to work on you know, policy-related questions. I also think that has a as a professor at a public university and an employee of the state of New Jersey, I've sort of carrying on that civil service tradition a bit that way too. So were you interested in science as a kid or did that come later? No, I, I think I'd say it's fair to say you're always interested in science. My mother uh, would read uh, science books to me when I, when I was a kid. Oh yeah? Yeah, so you know, really like George Gamow wrote a series of popular books that was very influential on me cosmology or something i can't try to remember what he yeah uh mr topkins this is a series of alternate between modern physics lectures which we glossed over a little and sort of dream narratives that illustrate the principles and so i don't remember probably 10 or so but that that those left uh an imprint on me if i go back to my 
childhood room, right? I've got the geological time scale up on the wall. I've got photos of astronauts up on the wall. Uh, <laughs> I got giant, giant uh, world map up the wall. So, so I think if you looked at me when I was 10, you probably would not be that surprised about where I've ended up. <laughs> there was a period in middle school and high school when I was much less interested in like a career as a scientist. Mm-hmm. But by the time I started college, I was thinking I wanted to be a philosopher and then sort of headed off in that direction a little and then decided I'll actually, um, you know, I was interested in philosophy and physics, but actually when I think about what I wanted to do, I actually wanted to study planets and life. I sort of went want, went from wanting to focus on the meaning of life from a philosophical perspective to astrobiology to climate change. Let's take those one step at a time. So where'd the, where'd the philosophy come from? Always interested in sort of questions about ethics and about how we know things that we know. For some reason, when I was in about when I was about seven years old, I told my parents I wanted to go to Hebrew school. So at some level, that was really was, uh, yes. My sister, my sister did not go to Hebrew school, so it's just like you know, this, this was sort of self-driven. Uh, and I don't know whether that comes from the same source as well. Most kids are trying to get out of it. Yeah. Well, I, I, I was bar mitzvahed and then left. So that, that's probably not that different in that regard. But when I, you know, I am more informed about my heritage as a consequence. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. All right. So then by the time you get to college, it's physics? My first year at Chicago, I was sort of thinking I was going to be a dual major in philosophy and physics. And then during my second year, when I started looking for research projects, to attach myself to, I found this professor in geophysical sciences, Munir Hamayan, mm. who was working on Martian meteorites. My policy interest at this time was in space exploration. So I was active in the Mars Society in uh, sort of late high school, early college. Uh, it was very, sort of, sort of got very interested in, in the questions of like, okay, how, you know, is there life on other planets? How would we know whether there's life on other planets? So I worked uh, with Muneer on Martian meteorite Allen Hills 84001, which back in 1996, some scientists at Johnson Space Center had found potential signs of life in. Right. Uh, and so my senior thesis was looking at the question, well, basically, you know, if you, you look at this basaltic meteorite, it has these globules of carbonate, which is among other things, can form in sedimentary environments in it. And these potential bioindicators are all associated with the rims of these globules of carbonate. And so the question we asked was like, from a you know chemical kinetics perspective, this meteorite had been in Antarctica for about 12,000 years. Right. Uh, how much alteration could it have experienced in Antarctica? And could these potential signs of Martian life actually be signs of Antarctic life? Right. And the conclusion we came to was probably they they could be, uh, right. which is not to say that there aren't signs of Martian life there or on Mars, simply that you probably aren't going to have them thrown at you by chance by gravity. And if you want to look for signs of life on Mars, you probably have to go and look for signs of life on Mars. Right. I remember when this came out. So this was a decent size meteorite that it was found in Antarctic and from the from what it was made out of, they could tell it was from Mars. Yeah. So So the oxygen isotopic compositions of rock are distinctive for different planetary bodies. So, so you can measure yeah. the oxygen isotopic composition, the meteorite, and say it looks doesn't look like something from Earth. It looks like something from one of the other uh, meteorites that we have been identified as Mars. But it's as unusual is because it's unlike those other meteorites, which were sort of 
one of the reasons they're identifiable as as Martian is that they're young from a from a solar system perspective, like billion a billion mm. years old. This meteorite was almost as old as the solar system, so it's the oldest Martian meteorite mm. discovered. And then the longest enduring, and I would say still ambiguous biomarker, there are these fossils of this mineral called magnetite, which have some morphologies that we see on Earth being produced primarily by bacteria uh, that make magnetites. And that were this, one of the focuses of my graduate work is magnetotactic bacteria. Tactic means it. See, it has these me- these chains of magnetite in it, so it's so it orient in there elongate so it turns acts like a compass so it it orients itself with the local magnetic field and then it can just swim up and down to look for whatever chemical goodies it wants instead of having to send its women three dimensions right you know some of these the magnetite particles in the meteorite have some characteristics that are predominantly shared by biogenic magnetite on earth but again it's one of these things where the standard evidence you would want to say that there are signs of life on mars was such that you probably want to very thoroughly exclude either that this uh, it's not biogenic or that it uh, did not originate in Antarctica. And I think that, you know, you re- so we really want to go and find in situ on Mars uh, rather than uh, relying on this. But I mean, it's a pretty hot topic for an undergrad thesis. I mean, I even remember hearing talks about this at the time and I was not in the field at all. Well, that, that, that that's one of the reasons the geophysical sciences department won me away from the physics department. Right. Uh, you know, I got to I got to go and, and uh, you know, do some chemical modeling, but also get to go and play with pieces of Martian meteorites. Yeah. The conclusion, I, my understanding is, hasn't changed. I mean, if if the field thought there was life in this meteorite, we'd know it. Right. They've kind of. Yeah. I mean, I, I, my conclusion and, and many other people's conclusions, I, you know, I would certainly tell you it's not unanimous that it's, there aren't signs of life in it. There, there are arguments uh, certainly made that you know, those, those magnetic minerals might be, but I think it's just that compared to where you would draw the standard of evidence for this, I think it's just a, it's a hard argument to ever resolve just based on this one rock. Right. So then did you go straight to grad school out of there? I went straight to grad school, which is something I often recommend people not do nowadays, but it worked well for me. So I worked with a professor at Caltech, Joe Kirschfink, who has worked on many different things, but they include magnetotactic bacteria and this Martian meteorite. And also he you know, was one of the people uh, behind the modern revival of the idea that there are snowball earth events in earth history. Uh, mm-hmm. So the idea that the planet at a couple points in its past had become glaciated from equator to pole, or pole to equator, I should say. And the reason why somebody might study both of those is that some of the prime pieces of evidence for that are is magnetic evidence that you have glacial deposits and rocks that are associated with coastal environments or, or shallow marine environments that were deposited at low latitudes. And so my PhD thesis, uh, you know, some of my work was understanding magnetofossils, and I did mm-hmm. some work in the, in the microbiology lab with, with Diane Newman as well on living magnetotactic bacteria, looking at what sort of morphologies of magnetic minerals do bacteria produce and how does that affect their magnetic properties that you can measure in bulk. So the snowball earth is where the earth basically freezes over somewhere to somewhere close to the equator. And that's now believed to have happened a bunch of times throughout earth's history. Yeah. So just for for context, so the first time this happened, the neoproterozoic snowball was around 2.2 billion years ago. And then there are a set 
of snowball events uh, around 700 and 600 million years ago. So the first one, 2.2 billion years ago, that's right around the time when bacteria are capable of producing oxygen. First, we first start to see evidence of the second two were around the time period where we start seeing the evolution of multicellular animals and raises all sorts of questions about, well, how does the evolution of early animal life relate to this, these events? And can you just say how the bacteria, magnetic or otherwise, could have caused it to happen? Yeah. So it wouldn't be the magnetotactic bacteria that caused it. But if the idea is before the Paleoproterozoic snowball, right, sure, so the sun is dimmer then than it is now, right? So right. it requires a stronger greenhouse effect uh, to keep the planet warm and liquid water stable at the surface. You may not be able to do that entirely with carbon dioxide. So you need other gases, uh-huh. methane perhaps, or other uh, what we call reducing gases. So, yeah. so gases that are not stable in the presence of large amounts of oxygen. So, so the, the idea is, okay, well, you had this greenhouse effect. These reducing gases like methane played an important role in it. If you start leaking oxygen into the atmosphere, you shorten the lifetime of these greenhouse gases, and you cease to have enough of a greenhouse effect to prevent global glaciation. Okay, so these guys are drawing down methane. Basically, that, that that's that methane or ethane or you know there, you know there, there's still debate about what what combination of gases, but but the idea is you know you had something in the in the with an important element of the greenhouse that was incompatible with large amounts of oxygen, and then basically you freeze over the planet and it takes you tens of millions of years to get out until you basically you pump enough carbon dioxide into the atmosphere that CO two is able to to bring you out of the snowball event, right, and so. In your choice of graduate advisors and study topics, in a sense, sounds like you were staying as close as you almost could to what you'd done for the undergrad, but yet brought you from other planets to Earth and then got you somehow between there and going to Congress. Tell me about that transition. Yeah, yeah. So so I think that's right. I started out wanting to study life on Mars. Uh, I got interested in that history of life on Earth and how life and climate on Earth co-evolved. Uh, so got a lot of skills thinking about like sort of systems thinking and, and how the earth operates as a system. Meanwhile, I had interest in policy, environmental policy and uh, all the whole way. Um, as I mentioned, I, you know, I sort of was involved in, in some local political campaigns in, in Pasadena. Um, and so when I, I got uh, to the end of my PhD thesis, I was thinking, well, okay, well, what am I going to do now? Can I take what I've learned as a graduate student and apply it to more societally pressing issues than simply sort of the long-term story? Understanding the role of life on Earth, I think, in this sort of grand understanding questions are of great scientific importance, but they aren't necessarily of urgent societal, great societal importance, but not necessarily of urgent societal importance. And I wanted to know what I could do. And so... You know, I, I met Michael Oppenheimer, who would become my one of my postdoc advisors at Princeton, and it's now. A- okay, so wait, I missed that. So the postdoc at Princeton, just summarize that. Yeah, yeah. So, so the question I started with was, well, at some levels, is paleoclimate useful? What can we learn from studying the geological record that actually is going to inform how we think about climate change? And Michael, who's 
been involved in the IPCC since the first IPCC back in 1990, you know, was coming off of the fourth assessment report. I said, okay, well, what about the last interglacial? I wasn't entirely satisfied when, you know, in this last round with sort of characterization of of the last interglacial. Can we, can we say Mm -hmm. anything better about sea level during the last interglacial? And so I, you know, that sort of turned into one of my major projects as a postdoc. You know, at the time, well, I, I knew something about sedimentary structures and geology. I knew how to read the geological literature, and I knew something about data analysis, but I taught myself a lot of sort of modern spatial temporal statistics in the course of reading through this literature and trying to figure out how we could synthesize it. So mm-hmm. working with Michael and working with Adam Aloof, who's a, a field geologist and earth historian at Princeton, and Frederick Simon, who's a geophysicist and really brought about a sort of quantitative analysis insight, we did this paper where we did you know, what we might call a meta-analysis or a synthesis of all of the several dozen local records of sea level change from the last interglacial to try to say, okay, well, mm-hmm. how well can we actually constrain last interglacial sea level? Our conclusion at the time was when you go through systematically, try to correct for local biases, Likely during the last interglacial, which you know, peaked around 125,000 years ago, and at the time we thought perhaps it was two degrees warmer than pre-industrial, and, and now we think maybe closer to one degree warmer above pre-industrial, so pretty similar to today, sea level was likely at least six meters and potentially as much as 10 meters higher than today. Well, some of your colleagues at Columbia have been have been questioning that the height there, and it, based on some some new detailed studies they've been doing, particularly in the Bahamas. The main point is, we, you know, we, we did the first thing is, okay, if you're going to do this, you can't really have to be systematic. You have to look at the physical processes that cause sea level to differ from place to place in a systematic manner. You have to correct for those and you have to be rigorous about your uncertainties. And so we tried to bring that lens uh, to the last interglacial and, and it got us to this conclusion that, that you know, last time sea level was, now we think one degree uh, warmer than pre-industrial, it was about six meters higher or more than today. You know, that was a pretty paleo question. It was a new field of research for me in that I had to learn a lot of new statistics to do it. Uh, but it was sort of, okay, well, what is something you, what, what is something that paleo can say that at least is relevant to the framing of modern climate change in the IPCC? The other major project I worked on was more of a continuation of my PhD work. Um, I worked with Adam Maloof on a period that I had started working on as a grad student um, called the Paleocene Eocene Thermal Maximum which has appeared mm-hmm. around 55 million years ago when there is very rapid in a geological sense, whether rapid in a contemporary sense or, or rapid meaning 10,000 years is a little unclear, but rapid warming uh, uh, on order of five degrees Celsius uh, with a bunch of environmental and ecological consequences. Yeah. And one of the things we discovered was that this event was associated with these really weird giant magnetic fossils that look nothing like any of the other magnetic fossils I've been telling you about. And so I also worked on trying to understand the geological context of what was happening in in the East Coast where these core was from better. So more of a classical paleoclimate and and sedimentary geology work, but also motivated by the fact that this is a really interesting climatic period, which modern warming is very fast. Most people would say it's faster than the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum, but some people argue that actually the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum is faster than people think and, and maybe mm. comparable way to modern warming. And meanwhile, also while I was doing that um, at Princeton, my appointment was actually 
in both geosciences and the public policy school, uh, what was at the time the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs, now the School of Public and International Affairs. Well, how'd that happen? There was some fellowship or something? Yeah, so there's a science, technology, and environmental policy program at Princeton that Michael Oppenheimer led at the time. Right, right. But one of the reasons I took advantage of doing that was to sit in in some public policy classes. And Denise Masvidal, an atmospheric chemist, led this um, public policy uh, workshop on black carbon. So I started doing some work on black carbon and its contribution to climate change as well, which ended up leading to a paper in um, PNAS. And so I would say I got much more seasoned over those two years in sort of public policy compared to where I was when I, I left grad school. And so I reapplied at that point to something I had also applied out of straight after grad school, which is a AAAS science and technology policy fellowship. That time I, I got it, you know, and I ended up being placed with a wonderful team at the Department of Energy. I think I mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, in the Office of Policy and International Affairs, where I worked very closely yeah. with Rick Duke, who started as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Climate Policy about two weeks before I started, which was sort of meant that like he was starting, he was, had a bunch of ideas. He's the sort of person who manages by saying, oh, there's a smart person over there. Let me give them some work to do. That worked out really well for me. Because the office of that time was both policy and international affairs, which is something that subsequent uh-huh. reorganizations changed, I ended up doing a little bit of both. My first month or so there in the international affairs side, Rick, or maybe even the the civil servant, um, Bob Marley, who had been there for 25 or 30 years and and sort of ran things at at a more day-to-day level, you know, looked and said, okay, you're our climate scientist. Go be the DOE advisor to the IPCC plenary in Bali. So I went to Bali uh-huh. and uh, so that was sort of my first exposure to the IPCC. And, you know, and this was the, the plenary where the delegates were negotiating over the table of contents for the IPCC fifth assessment report. So it was a very right. interesting experience. But I ended up evolving into two, focusing on two big projects. So one, right around this time, the Obama administration was trying to figure out how to consistently value when they compute regulations, the benefit of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Right. Key to this is something called the social cost of carbon or the social cost of carbon dioxide. Okay, so that was the first one. It's used in the federal government dates back to around 2008. Um, There was a 2007 court case where the Bush administration was sued for not valuing climate benefits and uh, Mm -hmm. transportation fuel economy rule. And so 2008, agencies basically started doing it in an ad hoc basis. 2009, which is when I, I came in in September 2009, the administration said, okay, well, this is might end up being important. We might end up having a lot of climate-related regulations. We better figure out how to do this well. Meaning they wanted one number. They wanted one number that could be used across, across, across agencies that was consistent with the best available science. Right. This was a process EPA had and still has and sort of maybe it's a lead role, but the process was actually led out of the White House by the Office of of Management and Budget, particularly the bit of it that was led by Cass Sunstein, which is the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, and the White House Council of Economic Advisors. Their contribution was led by somebody who is now a close collaborator of mine, Michael Greenstone. Right. I was in a policy office, and policy offices are usually stocked with economists. And the Mm -hmm. person who was sort of the head of domestic 
policy analysis, or would later become anyway, Brian Mignon, also had followed sort of a similar route to me, a climate scientist who hangs out with economists. Right. And so we ended up being in DOE, which was led by a Nobel laureate physicist, Steve Chu, uh, ended up being sort of the, right. the voice of climate science in this interagency process. Um, and so even though most of the crank turning on the models was happening at EPA, I think we, we played a very critical, important role in sort of the, being the internal critique of how the economists are, are doing this. You know, if you go back and read the first interagency report, we did a very good job of being self-critical of the limits of what we did. Social cost of carbon ended up being sort of the thread that I have carried forward sort of in a, as a research topic from this time. But I also did a lot of work on um, appliance efficiency standards and international cooperation around appliance efficiency standards. And I also did some work around sort of energy system modeling and, and coupled climate energy system modeling beyond the work on, on the social cost of carbon. Great. So there was so much there. So I want to come back to the social cost of carbon. But before we get there, just to sort of summarize how I hear the trajectory. So you go during the PhD, you sort of go from Mars down to Earth, and then you're thinking how to make it more relevant, starting from the tools you have. I mean, the paleoclimate, mm-hmm. like what can you do with paleoclimate was like you have this training, you have some knowledge. OK, how is it relevant? And then that leads in these different directions. It sounds like the Princeton postdoc was a very powerful experience because not just the specific things and being around some great experts in policy, I mean, Oppenheimer and Denise Maserol and all these big players, but also you got a lot of confidence in doing different things. I mean, one paper on air pollution and this and that, and that's a theme. We Just looking at your list of papers really amazingly diverse, even though there's some themes that stay there. So you're at the Department of Energy, which just as an aside, before we get back to social cost of carbon, for many people, that's a way of leaving academia. I mean, many people mm-hmm. never do that and they never come back. They end up in government or in consulting or in who knows you know, what. What was your thought process around that at that time? Yeah. I mean, I think when I started the AAAS fellowship, I was open to either direction. That's one of the things I hope to learn about myself. Mm. I loved the time I spent at DOE. We had an amazing team. The degree of sort of intense and in-person collaboration that you get in that sort of setting is quite different than the typical academic setting. Um, And so I was quite sad when I ended up leaving, but I didn't necessarily think that the environment would be where I wanted to be in the long run for a couple of reasons. One, people move around. And what I loved about the team we were working with, I knew was not going to be a permanent thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Two, uh, even more so, right? political leadership changes. Uh, I think every, almost everybody I, I loved working with, some of them stuck through to 2016, but a very few of them left, stayed around DOE right. after 2016. And three, I, you know, I, I was still continuing to you know work in the evening on peer-reviewed papers. And actually, because I knew I might want to return to academia and because I'm in a policy office where we're doing research, just policy-relevant yeah. research, I structured what we're doing. So I actually got a couple of economics papers that I wrote I, I wrote while I was at DOE. And, and so I was continuing to produce publications and keep myself sort of viable as an academic. And then opportunity arose at Rutgers to come here and be, you know, both a professor in earth and planetary sciences, but also associate director of the Energy Institute, helping encourage collaboration around energy and climate policy among the faculty at Rutgers seemed like a, a good fit. Right. And so I did that. I mean, before leaving the DOE, I'm just thinking about this. So the timing is this was the first Obama administration, Yeah, right? so 2009 to 2011. Right. 
so my perception of that time, and I want to hear if you saw it differently, was that although there was this great innovative stuff happening on climate that was, you know, more than what had happened before, but as a policy priority, it sort of didn't emerge for Obama until the second term. I mean, that's when Paris and all that happened. So for climate people at the time, it was a little frustrating. I mean, he was focused on healthcare and and the stuff you did had a tremendous legacy, but it, did you feel that? I mean, did you feel that it was like, it could have been a higher priority? I mean, I guess it could have been a higher priority. There were lots of things of priority. Number one was the economic recovery. And of course, I mean, at least today that one of the most influential things for climate and energy that happened until the Inflation Reduction Act was the American Recovery and um, Reconstruction Act with its yes. eight, you know, $80, $80 billion or so for renewable energy. I was not particularly involved in AARA stuff, uh, but just being at the Department of Energy, if you're at an agency that suddenly gets eight times its annual budget to disperse uh, with no new staffing to help disperse it, it, it has a significant effect on the agency. It managed to do it very well. Meanwhile, we're having, you know, the sort of backlash starting in late 2009 from the Tea Party. And Wax and Markey gets killed. Yeah, we talked. So Waxman Markey, we worked a little bit, you know, among the other things we worked on a bit was in the in our office was both some analysis related to Waxman Markey, which, you know, I think got caught up in the Senate and the politics of the time, because probably health yep. was slightly higher up on the agenda. And you can, all, you know, we only had so many chances before we lost the supermajority for climate, unlike for healthcare. Uh, the Senate supermajority was weaker because a number of those, you know, today people think about like Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. Well, in the, that Congress, there were quite a few senators yeah. from states where the politics on fossil fuels was difficult, yeah. who played important roles in the coalition on healthcare, but but might not have been winnable on climate regulation. The other thing, is, you know, is... is and this is maybe jumping ahead, but I think one of the lessons of the 2009 to 2010 versus 2021 to 2022 is that leading with investment is perhaps a more effective strategy from a political economy perspective than leading with regulation. So even though Waxman Markey had a bunch of regulatory stuff in, I mean, of investment stuff in it, you know, it the primary thing it got associated with was, was cap and trade. Right. That, yep. meanwhile, was partially because international climate policy in which we, the U.S., you know, was an active player, was also oriented towards cap and trade, the idea that we would all eventually all be assimilating into a global carbon pricing scheme at some point. And I actually don't think on the international side, I, I think skipping over Obama's first term is a mistake. 2009, we had the Copenhagen Agreement, 2010, uh, the Cancun Accords. Yeah. And those played a very important role in the lead up to where we got in Paris by by moving us out of the mm -hmm. paradigm of global regulation and into a paradigm of uh, sort of voluntary, you know, non legally binding commitments with uh, uh, cross check and evaluation and, and sustained improvement. We were did some work in our office supporting the team in, in Copenhagen and, and Cancun, and I actually think. Those have been mislabeled, you know, completely in particular, have been mislabeled as a failure. I think it was actually, you know, you wouldn't have gotten uh, into the Paris Agreement. You wouldn't have gotten to the Inflation Reduction Act had the right. fixation on, on global carbon pricing not been broken. Right. Obama and everyone else learned that they couldn't make 
first of all, the U.S. Congress sign anything binding, and second of all, maybe some other countries too. And so, and and, and that everybody hates taxes and investment turns out sells better. Just as one more aside before we get to the social cost of carbon for real, what do you think of the critique, which I feel like I've heard, or maybe I'm synthesizing it from disparate things I've heard, that part of the evolution was that the carbon tax or cap and trade, either one, were relatively easier for the economists to model than the kind of investments you've seen in the Inflation Reduction Act, and that that was part of the reason we didn't get to something like the IRA until later. In other words, that was motivated by the political realities less than by that uh, scientific sort of um, constraint. Is there any fairness to that or do you um, not? I made a critique on Twitter that ended up turning into a front page New York Times business section. Uh, so maybe I got column. this from you. So, I can't even so, remember. So, 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 so I think that's a little bit stronger version than the critique I would make. I mean, the critique I would make is right, economists have, you know, the 2000 through the 2000s were very focused on carbon pricing as a mechanism because it makes sense from a sort of first principles especially in a world with perfect markets um, and is you know relatively straightforward to model turns out the political economy of carbon pricing is quite challenging uh, certainly anywhere where it's been tried at a substantial scale you know there have been successes like the regional greenhouse grass initiative in the northeast for power sector california yes, yes. for example but the sort of legislation we finally got was one much more addressed at investing while addressing political economy concerns than carbon pricing or cap and trade was. When Waxman Markey was, was the kind of thing, there were people scrambling in a number of places, including in our office, to figure out, okay, well, what would something like this mean in terms of jobs? And yeah. you know, political economy with perspective would tell you that, well, distributional effects and things like employment are probably actually the most important things for getting something effective out of or mm -hmm. getting something out of Congress rather than sort of a general economic efficiency that aggregate economic efficiency sense. And so I think there was a period of time that the sort of shifted away from after the financial crisis in which distributional questions uh, and questions of sort of capital and wealth were not top line items for most economists. And I think the focus on yeah. carbon pricing sort of came out of that era. And certainly there were people working on, on, at distributional questions, but there's also this lag between where the research frontier is and where the policy is. And so I don't, you know, I don't think people were ready when, you know, we were trying to do climate policy during a recession where, you know, distributional effects and jobs really were foremost on people's minds. And taxes are just hard to sell in the United States. And taxes States. are always hard to sell. I, I would not go so far to say that, that like the researchers are responsible in any meaningful way for the delay. <laughs> That's a political economy. But I do thinking the, re you know, researchers have some responsibility for framing the questions and the framing of the questions does influence what the, the legislative discourse is. And, you know, there was this framing focused on carbon pricing that really got set in the 1990s and carried forward. And, you know, the big green groups were very fixated on it during the Waxman Markey time. Yeah. There was not much appetite for the investment-focused alternative that Senator Bigman, Bigaman put forward at the same time. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah. 
you know, we're not responsible for the delay, but maybe, you know, framing the question a little bit more broadly, asking questions that were broader might have made that that legislative window more more productive. Very specifically, there was an alternative that was investment focused that Bingaman was pushing. The, the green groups were very not were not particularly open to it. And maybe if it had been possible to, in a rigorous fashion, show that that the investment focused alternative actually would be quite effective in getting us on a trajectory that we wanted to be on, they would have been more open to it. And yeah. the analytical basis wasn't really there for for making that assessment. So social cost of carbon, let's first define it in case there's anybody listening who doesn't know what it is. So let me see if I get it right, and then you tell me if I get it wrong. It's the sort of net cost to the whole economy, which can be either of the United States or the world, and I know that's one issue right there is which one, of emitting one ton of carbon. Wait, carbon molecule or carbon dioxide? I don't even uh, Well, it depends. most of the numbers you see quoted are in terms of uh, carbon dioxide. Yeah, I mean, I would say, of course, well, what does net cost to the economy mean? And I think it's important just to, like, this is the cost measured in terms of dollars to social welfare, right? So, for instance, in our assessment of the social cost of carbon, our being the Climate Impact Lab, which I haven't mentioned before, but is another major collaboration I've been involved with for the last nine years, focused on economic risks of climate change. Um, but in our analysis, human mortality is the largest quantifiable cost. Right. And that is, you know, not the cost to GDP of people dying. It's, you know, based on something called the value of statistical life, which is how much willing people are willing to pay to avoid the risk of dying. And so it's important to note that when you say net cost to the economy, you mean the cost to human welfare. Yeah. Important correction. Just to go back to what you were doing at DOE. You said that the EPA was sort of doing the heavy lifting, but your role was as a critic or a, or a, peer, a peer reviewer or something like that. No? Did I get that wrong? Yeah, no, I think, I, I mean, if there's an interagency task force led by the White House, uh, but the people turning the cranks on the models were at EPA, uh, and we all had to write and agree on what was going on. But but I think you know we that 2010 interagency task force set a very high, high bar for basing assessment of climate change on a really solid reading of the scientific and economic literature. Right. But you, what you said was something along the lines of that. It felt good that it was self-critical of what the limits were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I want to hear more about what those were and what was the yeah. basic methodology of doing this and then what was good about it and what was bad about it and what your critique was. The general idea, right, is we use something called a benefit-cost integrated assessment model. Right. So these okay. are simple models and the simple, at least by the scale of climate modeling, that are trying to represent both the evolution of the economy and how the economy via carbon emissions impacts climate and how the climate Mm -hmm. in turn impacts the economy. And so the first such benefit cost integrated assessment model was published by Bill Nordhaus in 1992, for which he won the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago. And that's DICE. That's DICE. You model economic growth, you model how economic growth relates to greenhouse gas emissions, you feed those greenhouse gas emissions into a simple climate model that projects temperature, temperature you take and feed into a damage function, which basically says, okay, how much damage to the economy do you get 
from a given amount of warming, and that feeds back into into your economy to, to come up with damages. And for the climate scientists, this is one thing that I think blows some climate scientists' minds. This thing lives originally like in a spreadsheet, right? Am I correct? I mean, there are versions of it that are in a spreadsheet. So you run the model with some, you know, with some initial baseline economy, then you add your additional ton of carbon dioxide and you see how that affects the economy and you look at the difference between the two. And that gives you sort of a time series of damages from that additional ton of CO2 over time. And then you have to take this time series of damage and turn them into a single dollar value using uh, the thing that economists call the the discount rate, uh, which basically represents how much utility or how much welfare you get out of a, a dollar consumed today versus a dollar consumed next year. Right. I think the discount rate kind of hurts the brain of a lot of people who aren't experts in this because it seems so arbitrary and it's so powerful in terms of the answer. Yeah, I mean, I mean there's you, a lot of on different... some level, it's a philosophical question. It's sort of some sort of physical, philosophical, or moral question. What use use for it? Yeah, yeah. Well, at least there's multiple perspectives on the discount rate. One is one is that it's a normative term and it's saying how much you should value the future versus the present. Um, right. Another is that it's a descriptive term and you're trying to calculate how much people do value the future versus the present. Mm-hmm. The descriptive approach one can learn by looking at things like the long-term return on on risk-free or low-risk investments like U.S. Treasuries. The normative question is, well, is that behavior actually at a societal scale the right trade-off to be using? Yeah. In practice, right, the, the U, in the U.S. government analysis, it is tied to these sort of market indicators. But both are discu- approaches are discussed in the interagency report. Right now, the 2% rate of return on investment is sort of the basis of the central discount rate used in the U.S. analysis back in 2011, 2010, the central rate was 3%. Mm-hmm. But returns have been declining over time. Yeah. Trump made it, what, 7 or something? Trump made it 7%. We get the social cost of carbon down to zero. There is a basis in the literature for, for, for 7%, but it's not a basis that makes sense given the context of, of what we're actually doing. Right, 7% you know, is justifiable if these damages were basically to loss of private investment, 7% being a typical rate of return on equities from sort of private sector investment. Right. I mean, in the context of the climate problem, 7% is sort of like, we're all going to be dead anyway soon, so who cares? I mean, that's sort of what... That's sort of what 7% means to me. I mean, what it means is basically you shouldn't invest in mitigation unless you can get returns comparable to investing in a growth fund. Right. There's a variety of reasons why the risk-free rate of return diverges from the you know the risky rate of return when it gets from, from equity investments. But we were very clear in the National Academy's evaluation of social cost of carbon that 7% rate of return is not a theoretically justifiable rate of return right. to use. So what were the main criticisms at that time? I mean, the simplicity of the model, the fact that a lot of forms of climate damage were omitted entirely, the neglective extreme events and scenarios, the, the discount rate. I mean, these are all things that I've heard. And what was the number back then? I believe it was around $25 a ton of CO2. Uh, by the okay. end of the Obama administration, just from sort of incremental model updates, it was closer to $50 a ton of CO2 mm-hmm. plus inflation. I am actually a little bit more skeptical of climate tipping points being economically relevant than I was at the time, but that is something potential for large-scale state shifts in the climate system on econo- you know, leading to economically large-scale impacts. 
miscalibration. You know, to the extent that these are calibrated, they're calibrated at low levels of warming and then being extrapolated to five degrees or more of warming. Right. You know, just gut checking, well, how much warming do you need to cause a Great Depression level event in these models? Well, if you're saying, okay, 10 degrees is, we, of warming, we know limbs renders some degrees parts of the world Celsius. uninhabitable. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 10 degrees Celsius of warming renders some parts of the world uninhabitable. And yet in this model only looks like they're a Great Depression scale event that seems intuitively off. You know, one we didn't emphasize enough at the time, uh, which is simply is simply the limited empirical foundations mm -hmm. of the damage functions. And one of the things that really has changed in the climate economics literature since say maybe starting in 2007 is the development of an empirically grounded way of estimating how weather impacts translate into short-term and, and long-term economic impacts. My recollection is these early models didn't have extreme weather events in them really at all, right? You know, I mean, it, the, the calibration of them differed. Honestly, trying to say their direct temperature effects in general maybe gives a little over as to the level of detail in the sectoral calibrations of these models. Um, as I said, they, they, okay. the empirical foundations for much of this was relatively shaky. An important checkpoint for DICE was an expert judgment study Bill Nordhaus did in the mid-1990s, where he asked a bunch of people, including both scientists and environmental economists and economists in general, how much damage they thought would come from different degrees of warming. Um, he also mm -hmm. did a version where he did try to do some sectoral calibrations. But you know, the fundamental issue is that these were all like single investigator, in the case of one of the, you know, so there's three models, DICE, Fund, and Page. Fund had sort of two primary right. investigators, Richard Tolan and David Antoff, who was originally a postdoc with Richard Dice and Page had single investigators, Bill Nordhaus and Chris Hope. And these were all economists who were developing these models based on their reading of the economic and climate literature. And really were, you know, you often don't get academic kudos for like really well calibrated modeling, you get academic kudos for theoretical insights about the relationships between different elements of the system, right? So Bill's right. contribution was not the empirical calibration of DICE. It was the substantial theoretical insights you get about the importance of the discount rate and the relationship between trade-offs between mitigation costs and climate damages, right. which, by the way, might have missed some important things in terms of the benefits of investments. But 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 those these are ultimately models designed for modeling for insight with some effort at calibration, but they were the best available science scientific models for these questions at the time. I mean, it's kind of striking given that even back then, if you compare that level of sort of hours devoted to this, if you compare it to the size of the climate science enterprise, I mean, the climate projection oh, enterprise, for example, yeah. it was much, even then, it was much larger, you know, or many orders of magnitude. The size of the climate economics literature has grown substantially over the last decade, but... Climate Impact Lab, we are probably the biggest collaboration working on this space. And we're like, what, 20 people or so, 25 people, including like graduate students and research assistants and postdocs. For a global climate modeling team, that's a pretty small size team. Right. You know, we sort of really brought sort of the natural science collaboration approach to a field where really the standard of practice is like one or two authors. Since you've been bringing up the Climate Impact Lab, let's go back and like get there properly. Let me just sort of tell you the story of the last decade or so. Great. So I got to Rutgers in 2011 and the two research threads I sort of picked up there. So one was paleo sea level, sort of picking up what I had done in my postdoc. 
And the other was some work on social cost of carbon, you know, sort of caring for stuff I had done in DOE. Initially, that uh, sort of social cost of carbon type work was, was focused on these sort of modeling for insights questions, you know, papers written with me and Brian Mignon, uh, maybe a couple other people on things like, well, when should you use a global versus domestic social cost of carbon? What's the game theory involved in that? Mm. So, so we got like the set of work that is why I got tenure in a geology department is the paleo sea level stuff. And then I got the set of work mm-hmm. uh, sort of caring forward stuff from DOE. Since you brought that up, I mean, how were you thinking about that? Were you thinking I'm going to do these two things and one of them is going to get me tenure and the other isn't, but I'm going to do it anyway? Yeah. Or what was the thought yeah, process? Well, well, I mean, my appointment, because that takes a lot of confidence. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. I, I, yes, probably. I, but my appointment was 50% funded by the chancellor's office to be associate director of the Energy Institute, where it's supposed to be doing policy work. So oh, okay. although the Energy Institute is not a tenure granting body, it was part of you know my like how my position was set up. So I did that. So well, so you must have figured then, well, then if they hired you that way, did you think you know, okay, so I can do this stuff. And since it's part of my job description, it probably won't hurt my tenure case. Or did you think? Yeah, no, I, th- I think I think it probably won't hurt my tenure case was is probably about the level. I, I came up for tenure early. It was fine. I got tenure after three years at Rutgers. Wow, that's fast. I know they went to one, I think one economist for a letter along with their everybody else. I, I had enough of a body of work at that point that I think when I applied, they had brought up the possibility of, of coming up for early tenure. So I, I felt in the point, I felt mm. comfortable doing it and it, it worked. Okay. So I had the paleo sea level stuff initially focused mostly on the last interglacial. I had this work on social cost of carbon being at Rutgers. I spent a lot of time hanging out at Princeton also. Uh, so Michael Oppenheimer continued to be a close friend and collaborator mm-hmm. around 2013. He introduced me to his new, postdoc who had just come from Columbia, uh, Saul Shung. Right. Saul's thing was basically using econometrics to learn how climate and weather influence people. Um, So econometrics, by the way, is just the economist word for statistics. (laughs) And we sat together and said, oh, wait, we could really do a much better job on the damage function than the, in the social cost of carbon models if we leveraged what's emerging from the econometric literature. So we wrote a, a, a white paper on that that we submitted to a conference in Germany uh, in 2013. And then meanwhile, Trevor Hauser, who is a principal at Rhodium Group, and when I had been in DC, had been an advisor to Todd Stern, um, and I got to know through our work with his office, then sort of reached out to me and said, hey, Michael Bloomberg is trying to explore doing a Stern review type economic analysis for the United States. That's trying, you know, trying to do an mm-hmm. assessment of the economic costs of climate change to the United States to how to move forward the dialogue on climate change here. And Bob, you're the, you're the climate scientist uh, that I know best. Will you help me with this? And said, well, well so you know, wait, we just how did wrote... you know him best? And what, what did Rhodium do at that time? I don't even, I know sort of vaguely know about those guys because of you, but I don't know what the yeah. company really So was. So Rhodium to founders, Daniel Rosen and, and Trevor Hauser, basically an economic analysis group focused on, I think the original definition was disruptive trends. And the expertise was sort of on China and on energy. So they had like government contracts or who did they work for? So I don't, I don't know the full detail, but, but they really did have government contacts. Um, Rhodium did some, some actually did some energy system modeling uh, for the policy office at DOE. So Trevor had expertise on both China and energy, enough expertise that he came in as sort of an energy modeler 
advising Todd Stern in his negotiations for a year. And, and then we continued to work with them in terms of, of introduce system modeling. They did a bunch of modeling for us at DOE related to um, some of the policies around a, a national clean energy standard, for example. I see. Okay. So you knew him from your time at DOE? I knew him from my time at DOE. At that time, he had been an energy person, not, you know, and, and, you know, energy climate mitigation person, not a climate impacts person. Um, right. So he reached out to me and I said, oh, well, that sounds great. Saul Shung and I just wrote this white paper with Michael Oppenheimer about how we could improve damage estimates. Mm-hmm. I'm on board if we can use this project as a way to pilot this approach in the right. U.S. So the Bloomberg project, Hank Paulson, former Treasury Secretary, and, and Tom Steyer were ended up being involved in, they became the Risky Business Project, and our part of it was called the American Climate Perspectives. It was an independent scientific and economic analysis to support the Risky Business Project. It turned into a, a book published in 2015 from Columbia University Press, and then it, there was a science paper in 2017 that also evolved from that. But, but our approach there was basically downscaled climate projections of the U.S., combined with a meta-analysis of what relationships existed in the econometric literature at the time of things like mortality and labor productivity and and crop yields and so forth and exposure to to weather. So both of those, correct me if I'm wrong, were not government projects. I mean, those were, that was a private initiative. That was a philanthropic project. Right. And and I, I mean, I remember when Risky Business came out and I sort of knew you guys were involved in it. I didn't know any of the details. I mean, what were the new things there? Which of the limitations of the 2010 social cost carbon were you able to get past that quickly versus what came later? The focus of that was really empirically grounded damage functions. Yes. Maybe we should say a word about, you said it's what yeah. economists call statistics, but maybe we should say a few words about how you do it. So let's talk about our paper that came out this year on mortality and climate change. So what you do is first of all, get as much data as you can cleaned so that it's, it's self-consistent on things like death rates at a county level for as much of the world as you can cover. Um, and mm-hmm. so we got about half the world population in, in that paper. And then you get weather data. Basically, you use statistics to learn about how exposure to days of a given temperature, and it turns out not to be important, but we can also look at precip too, precipitation, um, how exposure to days of a given temperature affect annual death rates at a county level. Mm-hmm. Those are the sorts of studies that were available at the time of the climate prospectus. And then, you know, this is jumping ahead, but a lot of our innovation over the last several years have been saying, okay, well, how do those relationships differ across the world based on experience with climate of a given level? So, so like how people adapt to climate and also availability of, of resources reflected in, in income. So mm-hmm. what is the relationship between mortality and exposure to temperature and how does that change with climate and with income? And then given socioeconomic projections and climate projections, how, how might that evolve over time? So that's that's the modern approach. The 2015 approach was sort of hold the economy static, just say, let's use the future climate and say, okay, how how if, if the, cli- the economy is not changing, would, da- would we expect to see damages uh, in the United States from, from future climate? So basically, you have some data on mortality, you have some data on temperature. These are time series that, you know, for a county... And so you get a regression that says, you you know, based on if you assume that this relationship is causal, you get so many more 
deaths per degree and then recognizing that at that number could be influenced by all kinds of local factors. You do it for many different places and try to infer the role of adaptation, wealth, etc. Yeah, I mean, it, it's nonlinear and you don't do separate, you know, you, you, you do it all at once instead of in like each county independently. Right. Uh, but, right, but, right, but yeah, right. but that's a basic idea. Right. So you did these early reports and you, I think you were already adding more sectors, right? I mean, more different areas where climate can impact society than was in the original dice and all that, or no, they were the same. Not real. I mean, it, they, well, we have labor productivity, which was not in dice, well, not in dice or fund, which are the only ones where there's some plausible mm-hmm. way of relating them. By and large, where right, all of them had some representation of coastal, which we coastal impacts, which we actually did with a different approach, not an econometric approach at that stage. They all had some representation of agriculture. They all had some representation of energy demand, and they all had some representation mm. of mortality. Uh, but the results were very different, and they were very different in part because they were not really very clearly, uh, you know, comprehensively empirically calibrated. Did you get all the way to a social cost of carbon? Uh, not for the U.S.-based analysis, and that we did for the for the climate prospectus. Okay. Yeah, you know, we do now have the global social cost of carbon, which is one of the, in the, in the EPA, the most recent EPA report, the climate impact lab approach is one of the three approaches yeah. they rely upon. Within a few years of your getting to Rutgers, you do the risky business and the American climate perspectives. And then can you explain how that becomes climate impact lab, what the climate impact lab is? Because I think it's a quite a unique sort of structure that you guys have. Well, so what happened? Well, we had a review process for the American Climate Perspectives. One of those reviewers was Michael Greenstone, who I had also mentioned before. We worked with in, in mm-hmm. D.C. And he really pushed us to say, OK, well, now you've done this. This is great. Now let's take it globally. He sort of came into this partnership. We established Climate Impact Lab has basically an informal consortium, but, but practically a collaboration between Rhodium Group, Rutgers, uh, University of Chicago, and, and Berkeley, which is where Saul Shung had, had landed. And so we set out basically to take the ACP analysis global. Uh, what we quickly found was that there weren't enough, you know, that the meta-analysis approach we had used in the U.S. did not work. There weren't enough studies that, that met our mm. quality criteria. So we basically started from scratch and say, okay, well, we're going to start from scratch and do, uh, you know, these sorts of statistical analyses. We're going to innovate with respect to, you know, really learning about adaptation from how income climate affect the susceptibility of, of different regions. And so we spent the last seven years doing that. We have papers out on mortality and energy demand and coastal, and we have paper white papers out on labor productivity and agriculture, and all you know. Then we put all those into a essentially a new integrated assessment modeling framework, which has been you know updated to be consistent with the the recommendations the National Academies in a panel that I was on came out in, in 2016 and 2017, and get we can get social cost of carbon numbers out of there. So the EPA just released, so to fast forward, I mean, the EPA just released a new, this new report that has a new social cost of carbon that has a couple models, but yours is one of them. I think there's one other, right? There are three approaches in there. Our approach is one. And I say relative to the other approaches, we have been really focused on 
what the National Academies sort of set up has medium to long term research objectives, right? Really, you know, in particular, it's focused on putting estimates of the cost of climate change and the cost of adaptation on a really robust empirical foundation. Mm -hmm. The second group that had done modeling resources for the future, you know, their focus has been really, I would say, on implementing the laundry list of things that the the um, academy style is being very important for near-term updates. So their sort of mm-hmm. their model very closely aligns, as I would say, perhaps more so than ours, with what they said in the near term. But they they have not, in you know, a lot of the long-term research around things like the damage functions. We've you know that they they haven't really touched. They've been drawing uh, mostly on, on on other work in the literature. Mm-hmm. And then there was a third study, which is sort of a, a meta-analysis of other damage functions in there. So they all actually, for whatever reason, sort of turn out to be quite similar. So I have so many questions about this. I mean, I've you know, I know Saul since he was a student, so I've been aware of what you guys are doing. You know, it's amazing um, work and such a you know so tr- such a tremendous impact. I should say, besides you were able to do it, I'm glad that we currently have an administration that wants to hear it. Well, I should say, like, you know, the National Academies report came out in 20, January 2017. Yeah. It turns out the timing, the political timing worked out well for us uh, because it turned out the four year hiatus of federal interest was just enough time for us to actually <laughs> do the work uh, that we had set out for ourselves to do. And, uh, you know, ha- right. had, we, had we been trying to do it uh, on the, you know, the original time frame we thought it would take might have been okay with that, but the time, amount of time it actually took required basically an extra four years of work, which made us, you know, ready just in time for when there was an administration willing to listen. Yeah, well, that's a rosy assessment, right? Had it instead of being a four-year hiatus, had it been a permanent dark night of fascism that I think we still can't entirely rule out, it would have been. A, <laughs> it yeah. would have had a different. Yeah, effect. yeah. But, but 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 I mean, so first of all, I mean, a simple question I want to. I want to ask a couple of questions at once. The simple one is who funded all of this? But the other one is how did you manage to hold this large project together with multiple investigators at multiple institutions sort of trying to do one large thing? It's sort of an amazing act of discipline for an, in an you know, yeah. to do something like that in academia. Most, most things of that magnitude happen in a single lab, you know, where somebody yeah. can actually direct people in a more, you know, in a, in a more structured top-down way. Well, so national lab type thing. Yeah. Um, well, so lab, yeah. F- funding has been philanthro- philanthropic throughout, you know, we, we have, have not been federally funded in general. But before you go on from that, presumably not just because you were able to get the philanthropic funding, but because there hasn't really been a lot of government funding for this kind of work. Yeah, right? no, there's not been, there's not historically been a lot of government funding for, for, uh, climate and what is up with research. that? I mean, can we just do for a minute of diagnosis on why the federal government sort of needs this stuff but doesn't fund the research? Uh, I can't give you a, a great answer. The Office of Policy at UE funded a bunch of small projects, not of the yeah. you know not of the several million dollars over five years, seven years scale, uh, maybe yeah. like a hundred thousand dollars here or there. Yeah. The Office of Science at DOE historically has not wanted to touch this because yeah. they view it as too political. Yeah. And I think SBE in general, the Social and Behavioral and Economic Directorate at NSF, has always been a, a pretty slimly funded. It's just a strange thing where it's just a strange yeah, thing. Yeah, no, it where, is a strange thing that something that something that has results that impact uh, you know, tens of billions of dollars of government decision making, you know, has largely been one or two people, you know, investigators working on modeling and and there hasn't been an investment in this field of the scale of the impacts of the field. 
Yeah, and also it's downstream of a client science, climate science enterprise that I you know came up in, and you did too to some degree, that yeah. is much better funded. Right. Well, and I would say like wasn't so long ago, maybe four or five years ago, right? Incar actually you know had a few economists, and they got rid of them. Yes. Not our core mission, yeah. So, so I think that is like I hope it's changing. It's not. I don't think. Yeah, I, I mean, there is more interest in places, you know, in theory, at universities, and interdisciplinary. Yeah, no, but I also think like an NSF certainly like there's more talk about convergence research, but that's so you know, in convergence, yes. but 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 I don't think there's, you know, it, a lot of it seems maybe one step too applied for NSF. Maybe maybe the tip directorate will change that. And there's nobody really who has picked it up at the scale that the investment on the federal side, you know, EPA has funded some, some stuff, obviously, but not huge. The social cost of carbon was sort of a backwater area until it became a touchstone of government cost benefit analysis um, in many ways. Well, I mean, the social cost of carbon is one thing, but I think yeah. is, is a particular application, but I think climate impacts as a whole, yeah. I mean, it exists in many different fields in different ways. And I don't want to say it's not, you know, a thing, but I would say relative to how important it has become, it's still, it just doesn't have, there's not a coherent field there that advocates for itself. And yeah. Well, that may be part of it. I mean, it's, there's so many different disciplinary perspectives that that probably does not help with that. I mean, look, the U.S. global change. But that used to be true of climate science, too. I mean, climate science used to people used to say oh, it has different, yeah. but at some point it emerged, and I feel like that needs to happen now. Well, I mean, I'm getting it. if you take the U new U U.S. Global Change Research Program strategic plan seriously, that they acknowledge that. Yeah, you know, USGCRP doesn't write budgets anymore. Yeah. So back when it was established in the early 1990s, they had more direct control over agency budgets. Maybe it's changing, hopefully, but hard to say. I mean, well, it, it's hard to say. Well, I haven't read the GCRP strategic plan. I did read the National Academy report, though, that came out that was supposed to inform it. If, I, if I'm getting the sequence right, yeah. there was a National Academy that I, that pointed exactly to this and said we have a need for all kinds of usable science yeah. and applied research. And, and the U.S. agencies are not well set up to do it. NSF is the right one, but their commitment to basic science is an obstacle. So I'm just kind of exploring yeah. this historically. I think it's really interesting yeah. that this work you did which I think has done as much as anything to define a field of climate impacts in my mind, because um, precisely because you're integrating so many different things, you know, you have all these different sectors where you're trying to have a common approach. There's plenty, of course, that it excludes, but it, there's, a, it's, there's a lot that it includes. I mean, the fact that that was philanthropically funded, I think, tells you a lot about the current state of things. At some level, because the Climate Impact Lab is only part of what I do, I sort of see this climate impact field is very you know, it's very big, right? And climate, you know, what we do at a, an yeah. impact lab, right, actually has two missions. One is global scale economic, you know, economic damages analysis. The other is sort of using that for local scale projections. But our, 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 our orientation ultimately is towards these sort of macro scale analyses, yeah. right? We are doing yeah. approaches designed to learn from across large data sets, even if they, you know, we do projections that are local. The other big project, or one of the other big project I'm running right now, the Megal, the is a NSF Coastlines and People Hub, yes. which Columbia is a, a partner in, and that's very much focused on this, you know talking to people on the ground in the urban yes. mega region that includes Philadelphia, New Jersey, New York City, and thinking about coupled systems, how do changing climate hazards affect decision making at that scale? And you know, these are both climate impacts works, but the and they're related, but they're they're quite 
distinct mm. climate science, we also do multiple, you know, have a hierarchy of models and think about things at lots of different scales. So it's not distinct yes. in that, but it is, they're, they're, it's just very broad. And I think we'll have to see where, where the funding involved, but hopefully, you know, we should be investing in the, in the, in the disciplines that help us make better decisions more so than we are. So you're getting onto the question here, right? I mean, let's put it, let's frame it in a very pragmatic way, because I'm sure you've had this experience probably even more than I have. Like the student comes into your office, they might be an undergraduate or a graduate student or a postdoc even, and they come in and say, okay, Bob, you know, Professor Kopp, I'm, I'm really, uh, you know, I'm good at science. Like you were when you were young, you know, I, I, I like doing analysis or modeling or whatever it is. And I'm really concerned about the climate problem. I wanted my work to have an impact. What should I do? I mean, maybe that's the simplest way of boiling it down to, you know, given the current world as it is, you know, what are what are my options? And so in answering that, you have to think about not only what are the gaps in the science and in how it's used, but what are the career paths? What are the institutions? I know you've thought about all of these things. And so, you know, what are, what, what yeah. broad reflections do you give them? Or Yeah, well, so first of all, some of the people who come in are good at science and some of them are not. I mean, the basic message, this is a societal ride challenge that touches on everything it, we do as humans. And so you don't have to be good at science to have a role that's oriented towards a career or right. civic role that's oriented towards climate. And so right, you want to look for the intersection of what you're good at and what you enjoy and what the climate climate needs. We've run at, at Rutgers a graduate training program that we've run for about five years in community climate risk and resilience that is focused on training graduate students who may come from natural sciences or social sciences or engineering or urban planning or public policy to work mm. together in interdisciplinary teams to have productive dialogues with stakeholders to do work that is oriented towards decision problems stakeholders actually have. So the clapstone of that is a studio where, where the students actually work with a coastal community in New Jersey and help them on a resilience problem. Mm -hmm. So that is one orientation. And many of those people, you know, some of them go on to be academics. So they'll go on to boundary work roles where they might be at a government agency or an NGO that works with researchers and works with people on the ground in what we might broadly call climate services. Right. And so that's one approach. The Climate Impact Lab approach is more, okay, well, there the orientation is a little less heavy focus on talking to people and a more heavy focus on what can we learn from big data that is relevant to informing what I guess I'd say the target is more elite decision making there. So rather than, you know, working with uh, folks in a city, you know, the, the Climate Impact Lab you know, audience is more sort of national, to some extent global, and to some extent state-level policymaking. And those are also important audiences. The more you like to do data analysis and big and abstract, the more likely you are to be working on problems that are sort of at these at these larger scales. The more talking to humans is an important part of what you're doing, the more you probably want to be at a little bit more at a local scale, but there's a whole continuum of needs there. Right. The one thing that I really emphasize is that the, the, the role of boundary workers is really undervalued in academia and undervalued you know, more broadly, but 
you know, with respect, you know, Rutgers, I would say, is really a national leader in climate services that support state and community level decision making. But mm-hmm. if you t- were to take away, you know, the three staff, not faculty, three staff who are sort of the, the fulcrum of our climate services work, uh, we would lose a lot of our leadership role in a way that, you know, probably you took away three faculty, we would be fine. Um, and so that that boundary work role is really undervalued, I think. So let's both do a shout out to those three people and say what boundary work means. Yeah. So Gene Herb and Marjorie Kaplan, who, who co-direct the New Jersey Climate Change Resource Center, and, and Lisa Almuller, who is now the administrative director of the Megapolitan Coastal Transformation Hub, this NSF project I mentioned, like they have been working for multiple decades with both scientists and uh, state and community level policymakers. Right? What is a boundary worker? Well, a boundary worker is somebody who works at boundaries, right? In this case, the boundary mm. is between researchers who have science and you know, policymakers or community members who have decisions they're trying to make. There's a concept of boundary objects, uh, which might be, say, a decision problem, like, you know, in a simple form, right. okay, well, how do we how, you know, how do we decide how high we should require houses to be built? That's a decision problem. And you can look at it from the perspective of the municipal government. You can look at it from the perspective of sea level scientists. But you need people, you know, these boundaries, you actually need people in the middle who know how to make translate uh, to have those dialogues work effectively. That's what boundary work is, right? It's people who are fluent talking to scientists and who are fluent talking to non-scientists and who are helping helping the two of them have discussions around common objects that can help inform the decisions and help shape the science that is done. I know you have thoughts about how the institutions should change and you're doing this amazing work at Rutgers where you're working with stakeholders and all that. I'm curious, by the way, how much time you actually have to spend in the room with the stakeholders. It seems like it's something hard for a director to do. But on the other hand, you seem the way you talk about it sounds very well informed and makes me think that you must have done a fair bit of it. Let's just talk about academia. You know, do you think academia and the ecosystem that surrounds it is doing its job right? Or, you know, how should it change? I think it's struggling in the right direction. I don't think it's gotten there yet. Let's say your early career faculty and you want to do something societally relevant that involves stakeholders, right? The first thing is that working with stakeholders is slow and stakeholders may not want to go exactly where your research want to go. So you're going to be tugged in in multiple directions. Right. I was fortunate to come to Rutgers at a position which at least gave me some cover as my role as associate director of the Energy Institute to do policy work. And having been steeped in the federal policy environment for two years, like those were the stakeholders I was sort of interacting with yeah, initially. Right. I would not, frankly, let myself in the room with local stakeholders without a boundary worker there to, to keep a check on me. Mm. I do feel more comfortable talking to sort of higher level policymakers because I've done that. Mm. Okay, but let's say you're pre-tenure. Well, I, I suspect most people would be getting the advice, well, this is great, but really pre-tenure, you've got to focus on your publications because that's ultimately what you're going to be evaluated on. Right. At Rutgers, we have formally a written policy on public scholarship and how it should factor into promotion and tenure, which includes things like potentially even getting letters from stakeholder partners. Interesting. You know, that policy was written maybe three years ago. I, I, I don't have much of a readout on whether it's actually working in practice, because it's one thing to have a partner, a, a, a policy. It's another thing for departmental or school culture to change. Yes, exactly. But at least that's a step step in the right direction. 
But I think the other thing is like, you know, I mentioned these people who I think play more critical role than me or any other individual faculty in terms of our ability at Rutgers to, to partake in this area. Yet they're generally soft money. Uh, yes. This field, by the way, is like, you know, boundary work is probably 85 or 90 percent women. So, yes. uh, you yes. know, these precarious academic jobs that are disproportionately women, yes. you know, and I, I think the, the lack of tenure, the lack of academic freedom project protections uh, is a real weakness for these roles. And I think if we're going to take this seriously, institutions need to invest in having, you know, boundary workers who are given the same respect and same stability as, as faculty. Yeah. My perception is that the pressure to do interdisciplinary work, stakeholder driven work, climate services, all that, the pressure to do that is coming from the bottom, from the students and from the top. I mean, some presidents and deans are in favor of it. Certainly our president is a big believer in what he calls fourth purpose, of which this is, is a part. But the faculty in the middle, I mean, you mentioned Department of Culture, the faculty in the middle are the conservative force because we all came through the system as it is and have various investments in it. And I think it's really interesting that Rutgers is soliciting letters from, will allow letters from stakeholders because I think that's gets at why this notion is inherently radical because academia is a closed system, right? You get a PhD, then you can judge other people. You have your union card and, and a stakeholder is somebody who by definition is outside the system and, this, and, the, and academia just doesn't know how to value it. And, and, and I'll even throw out, a, throw, throw out a couple of points. One is that I think you do see more climate services work at land-grant institutions on average mm. uh, than at private universities because there is a land-grant tradition which is a little bit more aligned with the services role. At the yes. same time, the land-grant system in this country has had shrinking budgets, so it hasn't really been an area of expansion, even though institutionally, you know, we can hire people at Rutgers who are tenure-track extension specialists, but that's not where the money is, so, so we don't have tenure-track climate extension specialists, even though the institutional mechanisms exist too, and the, and the culture of, of having people who have some of their time on more applied work is is there, at least in the School of Environmental and Biological Sciences, which is the one that's most closely tied to the land-grant parts of the university. The other thing uh, I would say is like, I feel like there's a study that needs to be done in this. And I, I wasn't really aware of some of the early work on getting the, this public scholarship policy in place. Uh, but I think a lot of that has been driven by- Wait, Which is what? The, 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 how you incorporate public scholarship into promotion and tenure with things like... Oh, with know, stakeholder that, letters and stuff. Okay. Yeah. yeah. A lot of that has been driven by our colleagues at Rutgers Newark, you know, and, and mm. Rutgers is sort of a weird system in that we're sort of a, we're what's sometimes called a mini system, but we have campuses mm. in New Brunswick, which is an R1 flagship research universities, but also in Newark, which is an R2 a minority serving institution and in Camden, as well as a, a medical school, mm. but all one university. And Rutgers Newark has very much leaned into their role as an anchor institution in Newark. And so a lot of this stuff mm. on public scholarship and dealing with is, is coming through the fact that, you know, we are once university where some parts of the universities are very focused on their anchor institution roles and less focused to the R1 model uh, than perhaps New Brunswick is. Um, and so I think we, you know, have the potential and I really to leverage that, you know, because we are, we are both a, you know, R1 university and other things at the same time, different parts of the university emphasizing different aspects. Yeah. I mean, maybe we should say since we've sort of taken it for granted, but I don't know if everybody appreciates what the history of the land grant universities 
is here. So, 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 so let me give you my, my version of this. Uh, so, so the land-grant system, the universities have, have three elements. So one is the original land-grant college. So that's the stuff that, uh, you know, the original set was funded in 1863 with grants of expropriated native lands. And not all of those universities were state universities. Rutgers was a private university. MIT oh. uh, is actually one of the two land-grant universities, although they've more or less shrugged off did not their land-grant mission. But, but the land-grant colleges were to focus on engineering and agriculture. Okay. Later in the 19th century, first of all, there were, there were some 1890 land-grant colleges, which are historically black universities that were, were set up mm-hmm. because uh, in the South, that the, the 1863s were not admitting blacks. And then actually now more recently in the 1970s, I think that the tribal colleges and universities were brought into the land-grant system. Mm-hmm. But that's one tripod is the land-grant college. Second tripod is the agricultural experiment stations, which is sort of researchers yeah. working in the field with farmers to address, you know, to do what we would call today use-inspired research. And then the third yes. uh, element is cooperative extension, which is a partnership with the counties and the states getting extension agents from the university in communities across the country, um, mm-hmm. at least one in every county is sort of the original model to deliver, you know, what we might call continuing education if we were kind of in the system today, but also providing feedback into the experiment stations and the colleges. So we get this this loop where we have you know, youth-inspired research. We have people who would, I, and we were previously referring to as boundary workers in the in the extension specialist, and then we have sort of the, the researchers back at the at the main campus. And this system has been transformative for a lot of local economies over the last century. Perhaps not surprisingly, mm-hmm. um, it's also played an important role in dealing with a lot of environmental challenges related to agriculture and things like water resources. You know, it's also, they've also played important roles in terms of rural economic development. I started writing about this in response, as you know, Adam, to a, to a conference you organized uh, yes. a few years ago. But, but I think this is a really important model for a different way of doing universities. I mean, there's so many more things I want to talk to you about, but I know I've used up your whole afternoon. I feel like we've given short shrift to the sea level. I mean, do you want to say anything about that? Because you've done so much on it and it's come up here and there, but. So I started out doing paleo sea level work. Uh, in the course of working on the American climate perspectives, I really got into, well, sea level projections uh, that had become something that, you know, that, that we at Rutgers have become known for. You know, I ended up uh, together with Amy Slingen uh, in the Netherlands, you know, being the lead on the most recent IPCC uh, sea level projections. But one of the things I discovered when I made these sea level predictions, which were originally basically primarily intended to inform these sort of large scale economic analysis, is that there are a lot of people who want them. Mm. And so, you know, I started developing tools to make them more accessible to, say, state level assessment panels, many of which I started serving on, and more broadly getting interested in questions around, okay, well, what do people actually do with these? Like, how do these projections translate into? policy guidance into planning guidance into actual adaptation projects. One of the things I've benefited from in that uh, being at Rutgers is that we have a, a policy school that I am have always had an affiliation with that is actually very pri- you know primarily in, in its historic origin an urban planning school, uh, which is not something I knew anything about before coming to Rutgers. Um, mm. And so I, I've worked with some great colleagues there in urban planning, um, including some of the ones I mentioned who are also in that um, Climate Change Resource Center. One of the first things to emerge from that collaboration is a graduate training program in coastal climate risk and resilience, 
where we, as I, as I mentioned, sort of train students from a variety of disciplines to work together and to work with stakeholders around resilience challenges. Just so I understand that, because I'm actually really interested in, in what you're doing there. This is PhD students or master's students? and Well, so it was originally funded by an NSF research traineeship uh, as a, in a mix of master's and PhD students. And this... It's, it, oh. it's ended up being probably two-thirds master's students, uh, but, both, but both do it. And this is like central to their studies or it's an extra thing that they do or... It's formally a graduate certificate, right? So they all have to be in a degree program. There is a set of three core courses um, plus an out-of-discipline elective that they do. So it's a a pretty heavy certificate. And then with the PhD students, um, you know, since the fellowships are the the external funded entity, and so there's no longer fellowships, this is no longer really a requirement, but the goal is that they do a chapter that is sort of a implicate, Mm. you know, a a, a, a mm. broader level perspective on what they do. But one of the other things that emerged from this is, is work um, that led to this new NSF Coastlines and People Hub that you know, we started at Rutgers last year in collaboration with 12 other uni- uh, institutions. And what we are focused on there is doing science that usefully in, uh, informs climate action in urban mega regions, focusing on the sort of Philadelphia, New Jersey, New York City mega region has a focal area, recognizing that core cities have had a lot of attention and sort of the broader mega region perspective less so. Two, mm-hmm. advances sort of fundamental scientific understanding of the interactions between changing coastal hazards, including sort of meteorological side, but also changing landforms. Um, and decision-making at a household level in terms of whether people choose to, say, uh, invest in place or relocate, decision-making at a municipal level, particularly in terms of how these decisions uh, and these hazards affect municipal finances and ability to provide services, and decisions Mm -hmm. at a market level, looking particularly at things like insurance and property markets, and how that coupled system shapes our ability to effectively adapt. And then the third Mm -hmm. goal is sort of by doing this with several different partners uh, to improve the sort of meta science of how we do this sort of research. You know, we have partnerships with a couple of community, with Philadelphia and with uh, some communities in, in, in Camden County, and we'll see, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, and it strikes me that the, the role of the boundary workers, correct me if I'm wrong, the role of the boundary workers must be super critical, not just to have them and have them be good, but to have them sort of be there for a long time because to work with stakeholders, you can't, you know, you can't do it just with students who are changing every semester or every year, right? So there has to be some continuity there. And I think that's what's so hard to do in a typical academic setting because the projects turn over, the people turn over, you know, the professor doesn't have time to really do it all. And you need some you need yeah. that institutional memory. In it. Well, and the professor not only doesn't necessarily have time to do it all, the professor may not be very good at doing it all because it's, that you know, too. historically this is not a, a you know, the skill set that's been prioritized for, for promotion and tenure. Right. But if you don't, and if you don't do it, you don't, I mean, you, the professor could maybe learn if the professor spends yeah, sure. enough time doing it, but that's but, not. But, but also, frankly, if we're perfectly honest, the habits of mind and practice that make one a good intellectual do not necessarily make one a good listener. And right. probably the number one skill for being a good boundary worker is being a good listener. Yes. And so there are a lot of professors who are going to, who could be carefully capable of learning that, but there are also certain disciplines where not only 
is like being a good listener and conversational <laughs> partner, not something taught. There's not even for something particularly respected. Yeah, I, 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 I yeah, certainly. I wish you know, I could I, argue, but I cannot. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, so I mean, I think that you know, this is a five-year funded, so effectively a seven-year NSF project. But you know, if we're talking about flexible adaptation, we really need to have partnerships that last for decades. Yeah. You know, we are centering in the project. Um, the role of the New Jersey Climate Change Resource Center has sort of our, our primary climate services organization, um, mm. because that has, indep- you know, among other things, has great expertise, but also independent state funding that hopefully will continue for a while at some level. Mm. Um, mm. But 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 this underinvestment in um, climate services people by universities is a real weakness if that's an as- if it's an aspiration of universities to really do this sort of science. Well, um, yeah, it's a remark really a remarkable. Um, array of things you've been involved in and are involved in. Yeah, yeah, you are a role model for the rest of us. Oh, thank you, Adam. Oh, for me, anyway. I, you know, I, I yeah. Anyway, I don't want to talk about me, but okay. Um, yeah. Well, this has been a remarkable conversation, Bob. Thanks so much. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Adam. For your time and um, yeah. Keep up the good work. Yeah. You too. Amazing, right? Bob started with magnetotactic bacteria and snowball earth, and now the model he built with his colleagues is determining the social cost of carbon for the federal government, and he's doing sea level rise projections and about a zillion other things. I called him a role model there at the end, and for me, he really is. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli, and our editing and audio post-production is by Duotone Audio Group, where our editor, post-producer, and audio engineer is Eugenio Gonzalez. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection. Deep Convection.